the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to The Antithesis. My name is Owen Strand, and I will be your host. The evangelical church today is going through a season of thinking through church and state issues, Christ and Caesar issues more broadly, like it has not in centuries. This is an epic time. It's a time for us to think through in very clear terms from the scripture what it means to be a citizen. How do you conduct yourself as a citizen? How do you live as a Christian while being also a member of a country? How do you conduct yourself politically? What do Christians do in the public square in order to honor God? There have been at least two basic issues presented to us in recent days. There is a significant movement in the church that includes many people who have uh, a love for sound doctrine, and want to stand on the gospel by their own confession. And they tell us, basically, that unless Caesar asks us directly to sin, that our policy in the public square is to obey Caesar and to make no waves. So they err very strongly on the side of submission. And then there's another uh, voice in the church today, another side. And this side is also wanting to be grounded in sound doctrine and to love the gospel. And this side emphasizes that we must protest tyranny. We must even defy tyranny, as it is often said. How do we make sense of this? You have people today who love the Lord Jesus Christ, who are coming to very different conclusions on these matters. How does the Christian conduct himself in a fallen world, trying to be a good citizen, trying, First Timothy 2, to live at peace with all men, while also watching, at least in many cases in different countries, his government override citizen liberties and overextend its purview, its reach, its authority. How do Christians conduct themselves in such circumstances? Well, that's where many of us are today. This is precisely the question that people are asking and are being confronted with whether they want to ask it and answer it or not. It has surprised me to this point, we're in late 2021 as I record this, how little effort has been given among Christians to try to answer this set of queries well. In many cases, there's been basically a kind of one-sentence response, a one-principle response. What I want to do with you in this podcast, in this episode of The Antithesis, is walk through seven different realities that I think shape Christian citizenship in a fallen world, especially in perilous times like the ones we find ourselves in across the world as Christians. Seven realities that shape Christian citizenship. First, 
we need to recall that in fundamental terms, as believers, we are in implacable conflict with the world. We are in unsolvable and irreconcilable conflict with the world. You and I, try as we might, can do absolutely nothing to overcome the hostility that the world has for the church. In confessing this up front, we think of a text like Matthew 5, 10 through 12, where Christ, preaching his sermon on the mount, as it is often called, says this, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. There's a lot to squeeze from this text, but just note this. The prophets of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant era, were persecuted, and so will the followers of Christ be persecuted. But as you are persecuted, Christ is not condemning you when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake, verse 10. Christ tells you that you should rejoice and be glad, that you have a great heavenly reward, that it's being stored up even now. I think we could shut the podcast off at this point, (laughs) and it would be a worthwhile endeavor, not because of anything I have said, but simply because we are remembering the words of Christ, and they are tremendously comforting to us. Many of us are feeling pressed on all sides. Different friends I know, believers around the world, even in the West, have been persecuted for righteousness' sake in recent days. And they need to hear, we all need to remember that our reward is great in heaven when we are reviled and persecuted and all kinds of evil is uttered against us. If that is happening to us today in the 21st century, It is only the fulfillment of precisely what Jesus said would come upon his church. Jesus knew that his people would be persecuted for righteousness sake. He himself was persecuted for righteousness sake. So in being a follower of Christ, expect persecution. Living in the very comfortable and prosperous West in the last hmm, 50 years, let's say, has not really prepared many of us for this reality. Many Christians still think that if they are just nice, that if they say the right things and they sidestep the hot button issues and they present the right kind of Christian face to the world, then they can solve this equation. They can solve for why. But it is not true. If you are a born-again Christian, If you are washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, and if you are raised to resurrection life in the Son through God-given faith, it is unavoidable that you will be persecuted at some level, in some way, at some point in your life, for righteousness' sake. You can be persecuted for bad reasons, yes, for sinful reasons, absolutely. But if you are a Christian, note how Jesus frames expectations. You are blessed, makarios in the Greek, if others hate you for the name of Jesus. Friends, this means we're in conflict with the world in fundamental terms. We're not at peace with the world. You are not at peace with unbelievers. You are not at peace with unbelieving governments. 
It doesn't mean that you need to take up arms against those I have just mentioned. You shouldn't, uh, unless there are extreme circumstances that call for that, in which case you should. But what you should recognize is that in spiritual terms, you are in implacable, unreconcilable conflict with the world. You can't change that. Modern evangelicalism falls into the delusion that if it is just nice enough, if it just tweets the right things and doesn't verge into the hot topics that the world, especially the left, the cool cultural left, says are verboten, forbidden, out of bounds, then it will solve, it will solve this problem. It will find oneness with the, the unbelieving people around it. It will bridge the gap. It will contextualize Christian faith successfully such that the scandal of the cross is removed. But friends, I want you to understand the scandal of the cross does not only mean what you say about the atonement. It does mean that, of course. It centers in that. But the scandal of the cross is plastered, scattered all across the Christian faith. All Christian doctrine comes out of faith in the cross. All Christian doctrine is cross doctrine, therefore. All Christian doctrine is separate from the world. It comes from heaven. It doesn't bubble up from the world. It comes from heaven. That's where the truth comes from. Are there points of overlap between Christians and unbelievers, between the church and other groups? Yes, there are. There is common grace. Uh, There is a conscience that the human heart has. Every person is made in the image of God. We could go on. So there, there are points of overlap. Nonetheless, truth is divine. Truth comes from heaven. The gospel is God's. We are chartered by Christ, not by the world. And this means that we are not like the world. And this means that if the people around you as believers are in some form, whether very explicitly or less explicitly, presenting the Christian faith as if they can de-scandalize it, you are being lied to. That is not a minor problem. That is a massive problem. Such people are directly conflicting with the words of our Lord in Matthew 5 and John's gospel and elsewhere. Remember from the outset, you can't solve this conflict. There is no megachurch pastor who can solve this conflict. There is no apologist who can solve this conflict. There is no cool Christian celebrity or activist who can bridge this gap and make the world stop hating the church. The world is going to hate the church until the end of the age. Remember this. Second, second reality that shapes Christian citizenship in a fallen world. We seek to submit to Caesar, to governing authorities that is, as much as possible. Think of 1 Peter 2, 13 to 17. Peter writes this, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor's supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. It is true that the emperor in this case, as Peter writes, 
may well be Caesar. It may well be Nero, excuse me, that Peter has directly in mind. There seems to be some justification for that conclusion. Whether Peter has in mind Nero or someone else, Christians take this principle to heart. We seek to submit to the emperor or to governing authorities as much as we possibly can. That is a very important formulation. We don't start from the standpoint that we don't want to submit, we're not going to submit, but if the government earns our submission, we'll submit to it. We start from the standpoint that Peter has sketched out here, that it is important for us uh, to live as servants of God, to honor the emperor, and to be subject to every human institution. We know that this is a way that we demonstrate Christian faith, that we show that we are self-controlled people by the power of the Spirit. And so we're not looking, we're not out there going around looking for excuses to defy tyrants. Uh, We're not protesting uh, the new recycling policy in our community as if it is a first-order theological issue. In general, our default setting as believers, as Christian citizens, is to do as much as we can to support the public order. Our submission matters greatly. So we strive as much as we possibly can as believers to submit to local authority in American terms, to state authority, and beyond that to federal authority. We're looking to try to show that we are a submissive people. Third, reality of Christian citizenship in a fallen world. We also recognize that submission is not unbounded as a responsibility among men. What do I mean? I mean this. While submission has uh, us in its grip, while we are seeking as much as we can to submit to authority, submission to human authorities is not the same as submission to God. Now, in submitting to human authorities constituted by God per creation order, we honor God. We're ultimately submitting to God, and that matters tremendously. But an earthly wife cannot submit to an earthly husband as if he is God. That is actually problematic. She must recognize that in the context of marriage, 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6, for example, her submissive spirit matters greatly. But if her husband calls her into sin, or if her husband is abusing his authority in a more kind of gray area way, where he is binding her, uh, her binding her conscience in ways that are inappropriate, overextending the bounds of his authority, then he is not acting righteously. In the same way that a wife should not yield to her husband uh, submission as if she is submitting to God himself, Christian citizens must know that governments will also act unrighteously. Governments will in different cases encourage us to sin, and we must not follow governing authorities into sin. Furthermore, where governing authorities compromise uh, our human personhood and bind our conscience unlawfully, they are overextending their God-given authority, and they are putting us in a very difficult position. And we recognize, many of us, that in those instances, we are going to be in a situation that we would not choose to be in 
Nobody wants to be under an unlawful government that is acting unrighteously. If we are, we're going to have to recognize that the government is overreaching and that while we seek to be righteous and self-controlled and bear the fruits of the Spirit, these are instances where we cannot follow our government. If a wife, as my friend Tom Buck has pointed out recently, very, very shrewd point, sharp point exegetically, if a wife should not follow a tyrannical husband in all that he lays down, so a citizen should not follow a tyrannical government in all it tells us to do. Submission among men is not unbounded. It has bounds. We're not those who are trying at every turn, as I have said, to, to cry out uh, easily and undermine authority. We want to be very careful here in the context of marriage, in the context of citizenship. Every complementarian teacher and leader I know, every man who has staked their ground theologically along these lines, nonetheless, makes these things clear. And so we are not wrong to say uh, there are tyrannical governments and the bounds of our submission are, are going to stop at some point. Because just as we would not tell a wife to follow a tyrannical husband, so we would not tell a citizen anything this tyrannical government says to do, you must do. No, that's a proper, that, that, excuse me, that is not a proper understanding of submission. Fourth reality that shapes Christian citizenship in a fallen world. We remember that the terms of our citizenship matter. And so we use our rights. Remember that the terms of your citizenship matter. And as a Christian citizen, in whatever country you find yourself, use your rights. Don't pretend you have none. What is a good text by which to understand this principle? Acts 22. If you are trying to work through this as a Christian, this broader discussion, I would encourage you to go to Acts 22, 22 to 29. In this passage, the Apostle Paul is just about to be flogged. And Paul then avails himself of his Roman rights just as he is about to be scourged. And it is not going to be a pretty picture here. Acts twenty two twenty five, When they had him stretched out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? This is one of the most important verses and statements in all of Scripture for understanding Christian citizenship. To this minute in my life, I don't think I've ever heard anyone preach about this passage from the vantage point that it gives us very vital data about what it means to be a Christian in a fallen world as a citizen. But I would submit to you, no pun intended per the previous point, this is very important stuff. Many people, of course, when they think about the book of Acts, think about it in terms of Paul's missionary journeys, and that is absolutely right to do so. But the book of Acts actually has, like all biblical uh, sections of scripture, a lot more there than you might initially think. And so there's actually a theology of citizenship that you can unearth if you put things together carefully from this kind of text. Acts 22, verse 26. When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? 
And he said, yes. Verse 28, the tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. Why read this passage, which is, again, very, very rarely discussed in uh, matters of church and state, Christ and Caesar, public square citizenship for the Christian, because it's vital to this conversation. It's, it's extremely important. If you're a pastor out there and you're tracking with the case I'm making here, you should preach on this passage. You should preach on a bunch of passages, but this is one that should be in your quiver. Why? Because it shows us that Paul does not simply accept his fate. I, I mean, isn't that what a lot of evangelical voices, if they could um, counsel Paul in the early part of this passage, isn't this what they would say to him? Paul, you know, here you are. Um, this is your opportunity to suffer for the gospel. So take it. Just take it. Um, there are places where Christians uh, do not have rights of citizenship to claim. Uh, there are martyrs who are made in the name of Jesus Christ. And I believe they are made righteously. And I believe it is righteous in certain instances when you are preaching the gospel and then you are under the gun for doing so, for you to accept your fate and to know that God is using uh, your suffering and ultimately your death to advance his gospel. So let that be said, we have categories for that. I certainly do. There are times when God calls us to go through suffering and we have no, we have no lever to pull. Our number is up. It's been called. The bell is rung. And it is literally time for us to die in the name of Jesus Christ. There are many in church history who have heard that call. And that is a righteous call. And we ourselves may hear it. I may hear it someday. But interestingly, for this passage, that's not what the Apostle Paul, a godly man filled with the Spirit like you and me, perceives himself in this instance to be called to do. He avails himself of the privileges, the rights of his citizenship. It is not lawful, you see, for a Roman citizen to be flogged, especially when that citizen is uncondemned. And Paul did not buy his Roman citizenship as the tribune did. Paul was a Roman citizen from birth. Paul, you could say, uses his citizenship to escape this terrific, terrible instance of persecution. And perhaps this flogging, let's say, could have killed him, could have silenced, therefore, his gospel witness. So what Paul is basically doing is letting himself, as God will allow and lead, to play another day, to stay on the field for another quarter. And so he does. He lives longer. He has a, a trial that takes place in Rome. Beyond this, his life stretches out for several years. He's able to write numerous books of the New Testament. So we need to, we need to mark this. We need to track this. This is a hugely important passage for understanding Christian citizenship. If you have uh, rights and prerogatives of citizenship in your country, 
let's say if you have religious liberty in some form, you are absolutely right based on the example of the Apostle Paul in Acts 22 to draw upon those rights, those privileges, those abilities, whatever they may precisely be. Let me, let me push this further. You should avail yourself of your citizenship. You should use it <laughs> to speak in a kind of uh, direct way. You should employ it. You should pull a lever. You should fight as long as you can fight. Not as if you're fighting against flesh and blood, but you should use every means available to you as a believer to, to try to live and be a Christian and extend your witness and promote the witness of the local church. You should do this in a self-controlled, virtuous, godly, spirit-filled way as the Apostle Paul did in Acts 22, 22 to 29. But nonetheless, please hear me, church. Please hear me, Christian. You should be like Paul. You should recognize that citizenship matters. In America, for example, this is a constitutional republic. We have a constitutional document that authorities are subject to. Do, do you look in the Bible and find a passage that, that says, thou shalt have a constitution? No. But that's how America is set up, just like Rome was set up in a certain way. And Paul used the system of Rome to escape flogging and possible death in order to live as a Christian, glorify God and preach the gospel another day, many more days. And so you and I in the nation of America, if that's where you live, I know people who listen to this little podcast live in lots of different places. But if you live here in America where I live, I live in Arkansas. I'm a professor at Grace Bible Theological Seminary in Conway, Arkansas. Encourage you to check that out. If you live in this country, you should hold governing authorities to the terms of their citizenship. You see, in Paul, drawing on the prerogatives and privileges of Roman citizenship, he is he is telling us that Roman citizenship is a viable reality. It's not a sinful reality, even though Rome itself is not chartered in the name of Christ. So as much as you can, you use the terms of your citizenship for the glory of God and the good of the kingdom of Christ. You should do that now. You should do that in days to come. You are not doing something wrong as a Christian if you live in this way. You are not doing something wrong, for example, if you bring a lawsuit against your employer if they are trying to mandate you take the vaccine. I, I seem to see a fair number of Christians who are confused about this. That is not at all wrong. That is, in fact, I think, a very Acts 22 thing to do. You shouldn't do so in a belligerent way or in an unchristian way that compromises your witness, but you should absolutely hold your employer or your government, whatever the institution in question may be, to, to its terms. You should hold it to account. This is part of what I think Christian witness is. This is part of what it means. It, it doesn't mean when, uh, when it comes time for you to be flogged, necessarily as a Christian, you just stretch your arms out and say, give me as much as you got. There, there is a time to lay your life down for Christ. But there is also a time for you 
if you have terms of citizenship on which to draw to pull that lever. And you have not simply a a theological argument that I could make trying to pull texts together that don't explicitly make this case. You have direct apostolic, new covenantal, new testamental precedent. Fifth, fifth reality that shapes Christian citizenship. Remember that there are biblical examples of godly people defying tyranny. We've talked at some length on this podcast in previous episodes about Daniel. Daniel 1. If you as a Christian are hearing only that um, all your witness reduces to is, is so-called love of neighbor, as understood in a, in a way that basically means do whatever anyone above you seemingly tells you to do. I'll talk more about that in a minute. You, you need to know that there is more to the biblical case than that. We take submission seriously. We take it very seriously, as I have already said. But we also recognize that on this subject, as on many subjects, Scripture does not only say one thing. Scripture says two things. Scripture, in other words, does not say only when you're in a fallen context, just do whatever it says. Well, you're, you're supposed to honor the emperor as much as you can. First Peter 2. But you're also supposed to learn from Daniel's example in Daniel 1 and recognize that he did not follow the wicked ways of his context. In a gracious, godly way, he asked out of them. Daniel multiple times defies tyranny and evil. There are clear biblical examples of this happening. Daniel is one of the best. Here's one that you also will not hear much about. It comes from Matthew's gospel. You'll remember that in Matthew 2, the wicked ruler Herod has told the wise men who are going to show up and greet the Christ child that they need to come back and report to him about this baby because um, ultimately in Herod's mind, he is going to use the testimony of the wise men to root out this baby that he sees as a threat to his kingship. The wise men then are placed under a command from Herod that is not directly sinful. Herod has not necessarily commanded them to sin against explicit biblical teaching. But what happens in the narrative? In Matthew 2.12, we read this. Being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. And then pick this up with verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. What do you have working out here? You have this. There is a dream that we assume is given by God that warns the wise men from going back to Herod. Okay, so what are you saying, Strand? I am saying that this dream given by God, I believe, causes the wise men to defy a wicked ruler. God himself then 
directs the wise men not to follow Herod's instructions. Herod's instructions, please recall, are not necessarily sinful as they come to the wise men. He's a, he's a ruler. He has, uh, he has authority. And here's what he's said to do. Ostensibly, the wise men should follow that principle, but they don't follow that principle. Why don't they? Because God tells them not to. And then note that God's providential leading of the wise men ends up having crazy consequences. Hundreds of male babies in Bethlehem are killed and in the broader region because the wise men, through the leading of God, defy evil. Friends, we we need to track these instances and we need to be very clear that we do not only do what Caesar says to do and our defiance of, of sinful Caesar does not only obtain when Caesar says something like, uh, denounce Christ. There is a good deal more texture to this argument than a good number of evangelicals are representing, including evangelicals who, by all accounts, from what I know, love the same scripture I love, want to obey God want to worship God, want to be a witness in the world. I am, not, I am not personally categorizing anybody who would disagree with me and anybody who would adopt the, the love of neighbor argument and basically the submit to everything government does today unless it explicitly calls you to defy scripture. I'm not categorizing anyone on that side as evil. I don't think that. What I do think, though, is that for reasons I'm not entirely clear on, a good number of my peers, at the very least, are not working hard in the text to try to think these things through and say not simply one thing, but two things. We need to say two things. We need to say, submit to government as much as you possibly can. Take this very seriously, Christian. But then secondly, recognize that within the Bible itself, there are numerous instances that show us that it is not only okay to defy tyranny, it is absolutely necessary. Sixth reality that shapes Christian citizenship in a fallen world. We need to define love of neighbor properly. We are being told to love our neighbor. I have raised this on previous episodes. You can hear more about it elsewhere if you'd like. I'm just going to repeat what I have said elsewhere. Love of neighbor does not reduce to doing anything anyone around you who is not a Christian says to do. That's not a proper primary understanding of love of neighbor. Love of neighbor, the second greatest commandment, Matthew 22, 37 to 39, is grounded in the first commandment, the greatest commandment of Matthew 2, 34 to 39, 34 to 36. You need to obey God. You need to love God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. The love of neighbor that is the second greatest commandment flows out of the first. How can you love your neighbor well then? Well, before you get to um, the specific imperatives and duties, you have to define love of neighbor rightly. And this is rarely done. Even in so-called reformed and gospel-centered circles, 
Love of neighbor is grounded in love of God. The love of God is not a, a quick passing emotion. As many of you will be aware, as everyone should know, the love of God is a whole-souled, whole-person commitment to the truth of God, to live for God according to His Word in the most comprehensive and holistic way there is, to recognize by extension that Christ is Lord and that you are therefore following Christ in everything you do. There are not parallel authorities with Christ. Your ultimate head is Christ and Christ alone. So you are following Christ to the death, to the full. And out of the overflow of your love of God in Christ, you love your neighbor. You're always, therefore, standing on truth. You're always living according to the word. You're never doing something that would violate biblical principle. And you're not, in seeking to love your neighbor, simply walking up to your neighbor, standing there with your mouth open and being directed like a robot or a dummy by your neighbor to do whatever your neighbor says to do. That is a, <laughs> that is a flagrantly improper understanding of love of neighbor. Frankly, being a Christian in a fallen world means there's a lot your neighbor would like you to do you are absolutely never going to do. Your neighbor would like you to do a lot of things. And loving your neighbor doesn't mean doing what your neighbor, your sinful, unbelieving neighbor wants. Loving your neighbor means doing what God wants and living with your neighbor as best you can in a righteous way. Are there going to be instances when, you know, you can um, embrace what your neighbor is asking of you? Yes, there are. But there are also a lot of times where you can't do what your neighbor wants you to do. So there's more to say on this count. There's more to say even about the very definition of neighbor here. There's a lively debate about who exactly is our neighbor. Um, in the Old Testament context, love of neighbor is uh, related to the Israelite community. Does neighbor in Matthew, Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel, does it mean unbelievers or believers? Lively debate there. Nonetheless, whoever exactly your neighbor is, you are going to have a good number of instances where following God, obeying the first commandment means you can't do what your neighbor wants you to do and not living in sin, not living in unrighteousness, not living by lies is loving your neighbor. Make sure you understand that. Seventh reality of Christian citizenship in a fallen world. Finally, think in terms of jurisdiction and sphere sovereignty. We've already talked about this elsewhere, so I won't belabor the point. But you as a Christian need to understand that there is properly constituted authority according to the word of God in different spheres. I can't, I can't rule your household. You can't rule mine. Um, I can't direct the terms of your employment. Your employer directs those terms. I can't tell citizens in Turkey what to do. I don't have that authority. Just like the Turkish government has no authority over me. I think the point should be plain. There are properly constituted spheres, to use Abraham Kuyper's term, that God has laid out per creation order. And we not only have the option of living 
according to the authority of those spheres. We must. Uh, A related term is jurisdiction. There is jurisdiction that authorities have in their God-assigned place. And it is actually wrong and unbiblical to violate jurisdiction. It is wrong, by extension here, for the government to act as if it is the head of my home. The government is not the head of my home. I am the head of my home, and God has made me such. It is wrong for the government to tell me what I can do in a bodily sense. Are there some gray areas here? Yes, there are. But fundamentally, the government does not have control of my body. The government does not have control of my diet. Why? Because it doesn't have jurisdiction there. It's God-constituted authority does not extend to what I eat for lunch. We could say much more, but I want to simply resurface this need, the need to think in terms of jurisdiction and sphere sovereignty. The place I would recommend you go to understand this is Abraham Kuyper's Lectures in Calvinism. It's about 120 years old, more than that now. That is a good starting place. I don't agree with every element of Kuyper's case, but I do think it is a solid starting point for understanding the point I am making here. As we conclude and wrap up, friends, I just want to be very clear that there are going to be a good number of hard questions we face as Christians in a fallen world. There are going to be gray areas before you and me. Believers are going to disagree over the matters we have discussed here. We want to take care as much as we possibly can not to have the fire hotter than it needs to be in our disagreements. Nonetheless, we also have a profound duty to think well about Christian citizenship in a fallen world. This short podcast is just a quick stab at trying to help you do that as you face all sorts of chaos and confusion today. You're facing mask mandates, especially for kids in schools, that sort of thing. You're facing vaccine mandates. You're being told by influential voices in the Christian community that really the only thing you need to know is that you should submit to what government says to do and you should love your neighbor, which basically seems to end up meaning do what the government says to do. Do what the broad majority of citizens say you should do. Unless there is some sort of extreme, explicit command of violating, that violates scripture. I simply want to hear you, I want you to hear me, that is, say this. There is much more texture and nuance to this discussion, sadly, than many Christians are receiving. There is much more to think through. This will not resolve every hard matter you face and I face, but there is no better undertaking for you and me in confusing and chaotic times than going to the word of God, standing upon it, and thinking according to it. You'll still find yourself confused at times. You and I still must continually cry out to God in prayer, in prayer, and ask God to help us, and ask God to give us wisdom that we don't have. Wisdom is not in us. Wisdom is only in God. Oh, how badly, how desperately are many of us seeing 
in these evil days that we need wisdom and then more wisdom after that and then yes a great greater helping of wisdom even following there we need wisdom from god it's not in us but praise god it's not left uh to the mists of our confusion we have a word to go to and to think according to and we must try as best we can working very hard in the text to pull these things together because the bible has a good deal of of nuance to it on these subjects nuance that strangely and strikingly is often lost to this entire public square discussion to this matter of what it means to be a christian citizen in a fallen world my prayer is that this humble little episode will drive you to pray and to ask god for wisdom and then will drive you to the word of god to the passages we've covered and to many others i haven't covered and those i've covered have only barely touched on and that that will shape you to be a fearless christian second timothy 1 7 to know that god has not called you to live i'm paraphrasing in a spirit of fear but to know that you have a spirit literally the spirit dwelling in you of power love and a sound mind god bless you as you take a stand for god's glory in this day against caesar's overreach against evil mandates against policies that may seem to be for your good and mine they they may even be motivated by that by some but ultimately compromise the reality of citizenship and compromise your christian commitment friends it's not going to get easier to be a christian in our day god bless you god give you strength God help you to be lights in a fallen world. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here here in america they took my assessment and they wanted me to change it i was like i'm not changing it they had to get rid of flint with in-depth interviews archival footage and never before seen personal records of the man behind the headlines i just felt like i was drowning flynn deliver the truth whatever the cost available now watch it today go to salemnow.com salemnow.com